0: When I last was here, I spoke primarily about what the NHS had achieved on its 60th anniversary. What I want to do today is talk about the NHS's future. We're about to enter into a new era. After 12 years of expanding budgets, the scale of the public deficit and the state of our economy means that the flow of new money has in effect come to an end. So it's time to ask new questions, not just how much, but how we spend money in the NHS, NHS to best protect and improve this most loved national institution, of course, but to protect and improve the health of the British people above all. But before I set out our plans for the NHS as a whole, I want to say a few words about social care, which you've just alluded to. As you know, private talks had been held between the parties to try to identify a cross-party consensus on future funding. When Norman Lamb, who's here at the front, uh, our Liberal Democrat health spokesman, an outstanding spokesman, by the way, um, briefed me about the meetings and what he was trying to achieve in those talks, I gave the initiative my full support. I've always believed that the way a society treats its elderly and vulnerable people is a true mark of its identity. With an ageing population, rising numbers of people suffering from dementia and millions of people in need of care with basics like washing, washing, dressing or or feeding themselves. I felt that if there was ever a cross-party issue this was it and that was why I encouraged Norman in his efforts to secure a consensus. Now we all know that those talks fell apart when the Conservatives chose to launch a poster condemning one of the proposals in the government's green paper as a death tax. Yet in doing this they have killed off one of the best hopes in recent years of agreeing a long-term settlement. But the Labour Party is not without its share of blame. They they contributed to the breakdown with their cynical promise of free care at home, a promise everyone now knows will actually lead to cuts in care budgets for some of the most vulnerable elderly people. This policy is one of Gordon Brown's classic dividing lines, designed to paint opposition parties into a corner, rather than to improve the country. Between them, Labour and the Conservatives have succeeded in only one thing, betraying the hopes of a generation. They have elevated political point scoring above the basic needs of those in the final years of their lives. Now, Liberal Democrats will not give up on the urgent need for an agreement on the future of social care funding. That's why I'm putting the Liberal Democrat cards on the table We have in the past advocated a partnership model with contributions from both individuals and the state according to your needs and your income. However, though this is our party policy, we're willing to negotiate. I'm not going to short-circuit negotiations and kill off the chances of cross-party consensus by arbitrary ruling details in or out. The only way to negotiate is with an open mind. So instead... Let's agree, first and foremost, about the principles on what, on what an agreement must be built. First, fairness. Surely we all agree no one should be forced into penury to get the care they need. Second, affordability. When all parties accept the need to reduce the deficit, a solution must take into account Britain's financial position. And third, and perhaps most importantly of all, sustainability. Sustainability. We need a solution that unites the generations, not divides them. A solution we can all sign up to, not just for today, but for the long term. A solution that will not ever be torn apart on the rocks of short-term party political advantage. Labour knows perfectly well that their free care at home policy is a piecemeal solution to only a fragment of the problem. Offering help to those whose health allows them to stay in their home, but none to those in residential care. The Conservatives too know that their insurance proposal is just as fragmentary a solution as Labour's, offering help only to those who happen to have a lump sum of many thousands of pounds available on the day of their retirement and who happen to need to go into a care home with no help for those, uh, for those in their own home. Instead of seeking up, seeking to dress up these piecemeal proposals as universal solutions, I think we should just take the time together to get this right our manifesto will confirm that progress must be and will be made on a consensus basis by an independent cross-party commission i commit us to reaching an agreement that will help all people no matter what their needs are in their retirement an agreement that is fair affordable and sustainable I challenge the other party leaders to stop grandstanding and put the long-term needs of the elderly ahead of the short-term demands of politics. I'd be happy to meet with Gordon Brown and David Cameron at any time on the basis of the principles I've set out to start thrashing out the beginnings of a cross-party solution. But even as we wait for progress on a long-term approach, that doesn't mean we can't do something now to help with the difficult challenges faced by the many families in which someone is in need of care. It's time to recognise that there is a hidden army of people in Britain, without whom no social care policy would be even remotely affordable. Between them, they save the country an estimated £87 billion a year. They are some of the most dedicated, hard-working and undervalued people in Britain today. They are carers, people who put in hour after hour, day after day, week after week, of care for their relatives and loved ones. Just imagine how hard it can be. The physical challenge, of course, of looking after someone who needs help, but also the emotional challenge of seeing someone you love struggle or suffer. There are a million carers who do this for more than 50 hours a week. That's more hours than you are even allowed to work in paid employment, without even the right to time off, breaks or holiday. And yet these amazing men, women and children do this without complaint or meaningful recompense. I am in awe of every carer, young or old. So I want to make an announcement today about a new policy we will put in our manifesto to help carers. Labour has allocated hundreds of millions of pounds to its mistaken pledge on care at home. That policy threatens other forms of social care, has not been properly costed and should be dropped. We're proposing an alternative. Guaranteed respite care for the million hardest working carers in Britain. Paid for by redirecting the money the Department of Health has allocated to the government's flawed care policy, together with with its existing poorly focused funds for respite care. It is a simple promise. If you care for more than 50 hours a week, you will have the right to a personal budget sufficient to pay for a full week of respite. Giving you the time you so desperately need to rest, recuperate, have a holiday or simply be with yourself, on your own. This commitment to carers would finally acknowledge the the debt all of us owe to carers, and it would make a difference, a real difference, to a million families straight away. Now let me turn to the NHS as a whole. There is no other institution that commands the same degree of public pride and respect as our health service, and rightly so. The brainchild of a liberal beverage, it was founded on a series of fundamentally liberal, fundamentally British values. Fairness, equity, solidarity. Those principles endure today. This is an inheritance not to be tampered with. But it is an inheritance which must be renewed. That doesn't mean abandoning the principles that live at the heart of the NHS, it means returning to them and adapting them to the altered circumstances we face today. Liberal Democrats are, this morning, launching a policy document setting out our vision for the NHS. Flexible, with care that fits the individual needs of patients, accountable, so that local communities feel, once again, that they have a stake in this most valued institution, and of course fair so that once and for all we eradicate the stain of health inequalities that remain as bad as in the Victorian era. We value the NHS as a liberal institution. We believe it's our duty as liberals to renew it at a time of great pressure on public services. And we have identified five priorities. First, protecting NHS frontline services. Second, giving patients a greater say. Third, individual guarantees of quality care for everyone fourth prioritizing prevention and early intervention and finally putting doctors and nurses in charge of the nhs let me address each of those in turn first helping the nhs to work better with the money it has so that we can protect AE departments maternity wards gp surgeries and other frontline services this is the biggest challenge the NHS faces today. Here at the King's Fund, you have estimated that even if spending is increased every year in line with inflation, even then, there will be a shortfall of £7 billion a year by 2016, simply because of demographic changes. More patients, and crucially, more elderly patients. Liberal Democrats supported the substantial increases in the NHS budget made in recent years, Increases that were opposed by the Conservatives. But we believe, and I hear this every time I meet NHS staff, that a lot of the money has been badly spent. So we believe we can meet these increasing demands from within existing budgets if we help the NHS to work better with the money it already has. Of course, it's tempting for politicians in the run-up to a general election to say we should continue to increase the NHS budget far above inflation to meet this demand. But the problem is obvious. The NHS accounts for such a huge proportion of government spending that increasing its budget above inflation, even by a small amount, would necessitate big cuts elsewhere even in good times. And these are bad times. The budget deficit is £178 billion this year a structural deficit of £70 to £80 billion a black hole that has to be filled so we cannot meaningfully increase the NHS budget, budget unless we are willing to close police stations shut down schools and put tens of thousands of public servants out of work that's why I believe it's wrong for the Conservatives to pretend that they can deliver real terms increases in NHS spending It would mean wielding the knife across all other public services. Four and a half percent cuts to every department every single year for the duration of this spending round. Leaving schools, police and fire stations, the armed forces and every other public service £40 billion a year, worse off by 2014. That is a socially irresponsible approach. A commitment driven more by political weakness, by their historic failures on the NHS, than by economic or social sense. Let's be perfectly clear. Everyone knows the Conservatives have seen one too many reports from their focus groups saying they can't be trusted with the NHS, and they're trying to throw money at the problem. Trying to buy trust. But it won't work. The Liberal Democrats are taking a different approach. No departmental budget will be arbitrarily ring-fenced because we want to look for efficiency and unnecessary programmes of spending wherever they lie. But because the NHS faces these exceptional demographic pressures, savings we identify within the health service will be diverted to areas of the NHS which have been starved of cash or could be in future years. Areas like dementia, where demographic pressures are high. Cancer, where costs of treatment are rising. And mental health, which has been a Cinderella service within the NHS for far too long. Our working assumption is that we will stick to the government plans for NHS funding. That doesn't mean trying to do the impossible, delivering more with less. It simply means spending money where it is needed, not wasting it where it is not. There will be three and a half million babies born over the course of the next Parliament, 100,000 more than in the Parliament just ending. Only by spending money where it is needed, not wasting it where it is not, can we guarantee they will be born as safely as babies born today. There will be an extra 1.7 million people in need of long-term care by 2026, only by spending money where it is needed, not wasting it where it is not, can we guarantee they will get the standards of care available today? The big question, of course, is how to deliver that reform. In my view, there's a basic problem with the NHS that needs to be addressed. It's over-centralised and still driven far too heavily by targets and by bureaucracy. In the last 13 years, more money has been given on the condition that central government decides how to spend it. Central directions, onerous inspections, and a myriad of bureaucratic targets. Micromanagement, waste, and skewed priorities. These are the hallmarks of the Labour government. Government figures show it would take one person 491 years to provide all the data that government agencies now demand from health services each year. It costs a billion pounds a year to provide that data enough to pay the salaries of more than 8,000 GPs. There are now more managers, administrators and clerks in the the NHS than there are hospital beds to put them in. Just imagine how different our NHS could be if this were changed. We want to transform the way the NHS is run by devolving power to local people, and I'll say more about that in a moment. And one of the many benefits is that in a decentralised, decentralised model, the need for a costly, all-powerful Department of Health diminishes or disappears altogether. So we would start cutting back on the size of the central department, saving £110 million a year by the end of 2014. Next, we would tackle strategic health authorities, often nothing more than outposts of the Department of Health, there to impose the Secretary of State's will on the local NHS. We would abolish them saving £140 million a year. Then there are quangos, another instrument of the central state. We will cut spending on quangos by a third over the course of the Parliament, saving £500 million a year by 2014. Not an across-the-board cut of every quango, of course not, but singling out duplication, waste and unnecessary bureaucracy and eliminating it. For example, merging the the National Patient Safety Agency into the Care Quality Commission, devolving funding for drug treatment and eliminating the need for the National Treatment Agency, and abolishing Connecting for Health. These savings will not be enough, of course, to protect all frontline services, but I'm heartened by the report of the NHS Institute, which identified £3.6 billion of efficiency savings that could be made if less efficient trusts performed better. I know that productivity savings can sound like yet more awful, mind-numbing management speak. And I know NHS staff have had far too much of that in the last 13 years. But these are savings which many trusts are already making. So it's just a question of helping everyone, all trusts, meet the standards of the best. Changes like reducing preoperative operative Uh, bed days, increasing day surgery rates, increasing the number of patients who turn up for their appointments, and prescribing more low-cost alternatives within drug families. All of that could make an enormous difference and help deliver that much-needed £3.6 billion to the front line. The second priority we identify in the document we're publishing today is giving patients a greater say. I've lost count of the number of my constituents in Sheffield who've come to me baffled, confused, distressed by an an encounter with the bureaucratic machinery of the NHS. It can sometimes be impossible to navigate, impossible to work out what you're entitled to, and impossible to work out who is really in charge. And this sense of disempowerment is only worsened when services in your neighbourhood that you value and trust are suddenly earmarked for closure by an anonymous committee, and it seems there is nothing you can do about it. I feel it myself. Today is my youngest son, uh, Miguel's, first birthday. A year ago, to this day, he was born at Kingston Hos- Hospital in southwest London. My wife and, and, obviously to a much less direct extent, myself, uh, we received just the most wonderful care in the maternity ward from all of the staff. But just a few weeks ago, I discovered from my Liberal Democrat colleagues, Susan Kramer and Ed Davies, the the local MPs in the area, that this very maternity ward, where our third son was born exactly a year ago, could be earmarked for closure as part of a rationalisation of services in south-west London. I was knocked for six. You can talk about rationalisation, efficiency, streamlining and productivity gains all you like, but for every single person who's ever had care in in the NHS, and that's pretty much everyone, these things are personal. I know there are some health economists who throw up their hands when they see local protests against hospital closures, who say people are being irrational. The experts know best best, and centrally driven service rationalisation is the only way forward. But we have tested to destruction, the technocratic model of decision making, and it isn't working. The NHS does not belong to the experts. It belongs to people. And it matters. It really does matter that people feel they have a stake in it. That they get the treatment they need, just not what some distant economist has decided is best for them. Public services are for the public. A responsive NHS should have a central structure, of course, but it should not dictate local needs. It, it should respond to them. The signal shouldn't always go downwards in the form of orders, targets, rules and regulations, the signals should go upwards from patients, from communities, from doctors, nurses and local managers so that they're motivated to respond to individual needs, not just the needs of the system. We know from some of the best healthcare systems in Europe and beyond, Denmark and Sweden in particular, that this is the way to deliver improving locally connected care and that difficult decisions about closures or changes can and do get made, but they get made by the people who use those services, not to them. That is why Liberal Democrats will devolve real power and real responsibility to communities. I want to turn remote PCTs that answer to the Secretary of State into accountable local health boards answerable to service users. Two-thirds of the members directly elected by local people, and the third Indirectly, the final third, indirectly elected representatives from local councils. Let me assure assure you, this isn't a proposal for yet another reorganisation of the structure. I know, I hear it all the time from everyone I meet who works in the NHS, that you're sick to the back teeth of restructuring. Our proposals will not put you through another pointless cycle of change. What we want instead is for the existing structures, primary care trusts, to become democratically accountable but it's not enough to devolve power to the health board level we should go further still we need to empower individuals with truly personalized health services too i welcome the changes the government is making to move in this direction i want to see more direct payments and individual budgets for people with chronic long-term conditions and in mental health services in particular where care still lags too far behind That means allowing health service users the opportunity to select their own forms of treatment anywhere within the health service, or potentially from outside, as already happens in some parts of the social care system. By giving real choice to the individual, we can empower the patient and allow them to shape a care package for themselves, a package that suits their individual wants and needs. Our third priority is to give everyone clear guarantees that they will have access to quality care when they're entitled to it, regardless of where they live or what they do. A factor I often tell people, but which appalls me every time I do, is this. A child born in the poorest neighbourhood in my city, of Sheffield, is likely to die a full 14 years before a child born just up the road in a more affluent part of the town. That is wrong, plain and simple. It has to change. We will introduce a patient premium so that GPs who accept patients from areas with the worst health and deprivation scores receive an extra payment for each one they take. This will provide GP practices with a direct incentive to take on patients from poor areas and at the same time give them the resources to deal with any extra calls on their services that such patients might make. Most people's first point of contact with the NHS is through their GP. So it's vital that these services are improved. We will give every patient the right to choose the GP they want, regardless of where they live, and the right to contact their GP by email, enabling GPs to carry out e-consultations, manage patients with long-term conditions, and reduce demand for unnecessary appointments. Just think of the numbers of people who visit their GP regularly because of long-term conditions, from diabetes to to MS, who don't want to have to go to the surgery every single time they have a question or a query imagine how much easier it would be for them and their doctor if sometimes when it was appropriate they just exchanged a few emails on top of this we have detailed proposals for reform across the service to improve access and safety ensuring gps out of service out of hours care requiring all foreign doctors working in the nhs Uh, to pass competence and language tests obliging hospitals and GPs to inform patients and relatives when errors occur and above all guaranteeing access to treatment instead of a myriad of targets I want to see a set of entitlements for every citizen and I want to see them guaranteed. Labour has now started talking about entitlements but an entitlement means nothing unless there is a guaranteed mechanism to deliver it. There needs to be an or else for local health trusts if they fail. Under our system, where a health service provider fails to deliver those entitlements, they will be legally obliged to pay for that treatment in whichever facility can provide it, public or private. We know this can work because we have seen it work in Denmark. Their entitlement system has driven up efficiency standards as state hospitals do everything within their power to avoid having to pay for treatment in the private sector. And it will do the same here, saving money and improving standards. Our two final priorities are shared, at least rhetorically, across the party divide. Prioritising prevention and early intervention to try to stop people getting ill in the first place, and putting doctors and nurses back in charge of the NHS with the ability to manage budgets, dictate priorities, or even run services. Preventative medicine is just common sense. So today we set out some common sense ideas how to make it happen. Changing the way GPs get paid so they are incentivised to help patients lose weight, give up smoking, and more, instead of just to take note of these health indicators. Giving more incentives to commissioners PCTs or health boards as we as we would call them to invest in prevention working jointly with local authorities integrating health and social care so the two services don't increase costs by transferring patients between each other inappropriately as for putting doctors and nurses in charge this is politically fashionable right now even labor which took power away from frontline staff is now eager to make new promises in this area the assurance i can offer the hundreds of thousands of people who work in the NHS, is simple. Employee empowerment is a fundamental liberal principle. Liberal Democrats are not fair-weather friends, promising more freedom one day and threatening more rules the next. The idea of devolving power away from Whitehall, away from managers, and to the public services who are at the heart and soul of the NHS goes to the heart of everything we believe in. We will put frontline staff in charge of their ward or unit budgets. We will allow staff to establish social enterprises or John Lewis-style employee trusts to run services of all kinds within the NHS. We will let diversity and flexibility flourish within our health service. And we can assure you this will be a permanent change, not a temporary blip in an otherwise unrelenting stream of centralisation. So in conclusion, I hope, I hope today you've, you've got a sense of what a Liberal Democrat NHS would look like, how different it would be for you. You would have a say over the services in your area. You would have the certainty that you would get treated on time. You would be able to choose whichever GP you wanted and get access to them on your terms. You would have an inalienable right to a week of respite if you care for a loved one for more than 50 hours a week. You would know doctors and nurses were right at the heart of deciding how best to run the services they provide to you. This is a time of of real change for the NHS. So let's make sure it is a change in the right direction. This has to be a moment for real reform, or the NHS and the patients who depend on it will suffer. Only decentralisation, empowerment and accountability can protect the NHS for the future so we can pass on our proud liberal inheritance to the next generation thank you very much for listening to me